Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. Today, we're discussing piriformis syndrome with Dr. Alison Grimaldi. Dr. Grimaldi is a specialist hip and pelvic pain physiotherapist. Now, piriformis syndrome is a condition that is frequently mis- and overdiagnosed. Today, we get the lowdown on exactly what it is, how to diagnose it, and what you can actually do about it if you think you have it. Now, if you have benefited from listening to the show, please share it. That means pinging it to a few friends in a WhatsApp group or taking a screenshot and posting it on your Instagram stories. And tag us at the Pod underscore. It means the world to us and really, really helps us grow. Thank you to all who do this regularly. But for now, I'll leave you to enjoy the latest episode with Dr. Alison Grimaldi. And welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. Today we are discussing all things piriformis syndrome with the expert of all things hip and pelvises, Dr. Alison Grimaldi. Dr. Grimaldi, welcome to the Back Pain Podcast. Thanks very much for the invitation to be here. Great to be here with you today. Fantastic. Joining us all the way from hopefully sunny Brisbane. So so we're going to jump in then straight away talking about piriformis syndrome. So can you enlighten us as to what actually piriformis syndrome is? And then secondly, which I know you're going to elaborate on later, does it actually exist? Yeah, good question. And a really good one to start with, because it is a source of lots of confusion out there in the community, probably because piriformis syndrome is misused sometimes. Uh, so it does exist as a real condition. Unfortunately, it's become a bit of a myth, mainly because of the misuse uh, of this condition. But piriformis is effectively an irritation of the sciatic nerve, uh, which usually stems from some compression of the nerve as it runs through the buttocks. So the piriformis uh, is a muscle in the buttock and the sciatic nerve runs from inside the pelvis through the buttock, either underneath or sometimes through the piriformis muscle and down into the leg. So effectively, it's just when there's some sort of irritation of the sciatic nerve within or beside that piriformis muscle. Okay, so it's, I mean, is, is the muscle tight? Is it, is it compressing it? Is it overactive? You know, do we know what it is that makes that muscle, you know, irritate the, the sciatic nerve? So there are various theories around piriformis syndrome, but the three biggest reasons are usually some sort of anatomical uh, variation in the the relationship between the nerve and the muscle. So in most people, in 90% of people, the sciatic nerve comes out of the pelvis through a notch in the back of our bony pelvis, and it runs underneath the piriformis. In other people, the nerve may come through the piriformis or part of the nerve can come through the piriformis. The sciatic nerve is a big nerve. Sometimes it actually comes from the pelvis in two halves, and sometimes one half of the nerve or all of the nerve can come through the piriformis. So at With that sort of anatomy, it's thought that there is some increasing risk. So with with the anatomy that the sciatic nerve comes through the piriformis, there is a thought that there's increased risk of compression. But it's just really important to note that that 
there's lots of people who have that anatomical setup and they do not all get piriformis syndrome. So it's just one of the things that may increase the risk. But, you know, you can have that uh, anatomy and not have the condition and vice versa. So that's one thing. So anatomy. Another thing is hypertrophy of the piriformis muscle. So it can become enlarged. And there's various reasons for that. It can just be because it's working hard because you're uh, using your muscles, you know, in a, a strong way. So you might be doing lots of uh, buttock exercise at the gym or certain physical activities require quite a lot of buttock activity and activity of those deeper rotator muscles in the hip. And that might be something like trail running uh, or cycling, heavy cycling up hills, things where you're in an unstable environment, but you have to use your buttock muscles hard. So there might be something that you've been doing that has caused some hypertrophy in the muscle. So that hypertrophy just means the muscles got big um, from working hard. And other times, perhaps the muscle is working a little hard because the piriformis is a part of a team of muscles that performs certain tasks around the hip for example taking the leg out to the side and rotating the hip so if it's one of a team of muscles so if there are other members in that team that get a bit weak then the piriformis may need to do more than its normal job so they're probably the key reasons why we see piriformis becoming a bit more active than normal so i mean that sounds you know very obvious very clear cut and it makes total sense to me why then, as you mentioned at the beginning, would it be contentious that, you know, that it even exists, you know, and some people will say that it, it doesn't exist, you know, where, where are they coming from in on that angle? Well, piriformis syndrome should be used as a term specifically for sciatic nerve irritation at the level of the piriformis. The problem is that piriformis syndrome gets used as a diagnosis for pretty much any buttock pain. So someone presents with buttock pain and if it's somewhere in the middle of their buttock, then they just automatically get diagnosed with piriformis syndrome. Actually, I've seen piriformis syndrome being diagnosed for pretty much any pain in the buttock. Mm. So it's being used as a very uh, non-specific term and also for conditions that might just be you know, muscle-related pain or other sources of pain rather than just sciatic nerve uh, irritation. The other issue is that the sciatic nerve may be irritated at a number of different places through the buttock, and the piriformis is only one of those potential sources. So there are three main zones in the buttocks, though it may be irritated at the piriformis, a little bit lower down at the level of some of the deep rotators, and then further down again when the nerve exits the pelvis between the sitting bone and the back of the, the hip bone or the femur. And so therefore, piriformis syndrome wouldn't be a correct diagnosis if we are talking about irritations of the nerve in different uh, locations in the buttock. So therefore, more recently, a different terminology has been suggested, suggested, which is deep gluteal syndrome. And that's trying to be a bit more of an umbrella term for any sources of irritation of the sciatic nerve as it runs through the buttock. So 
deep gluteal syndrome just refers to irritation of the nerve in the deep gluteal space, which is basically just if you take your big gluteus maximus muscle off the back of your buttock, uh, you see a space and that's where the nerve runs through the buttock. So the piriformis is within that space, but there's also other uh, causes of irritation of the nerve in that space. Fantastic. So, you know, you said that you know, it, it's quite overdiagnosed or, it, you know, lots of things get labelled as this kind of, you know, piriformis syndrome. Do, do we know or have any idea how, how common it actually is? You know, how common, how common these people with true static irritation actually it is the piriformis that's the cause of it? Not really. We don't have great uh, prevalence studies at all. And part of that is because of the misdiagnosis and the length of time it takes for people with true piriformis syndrome to be diagnosed. So there's there's this flip side. So there's lots of overdiagnosis, but there's also on the flip side of that, there's a lot of people that go for years being treated as a primary lumbar spine issue. And the primary issue is actually in, in the buttock. Uh, so there's no uh, great information on prevalence, like how often it is, but it's just something I think that um, people with this pain, but particularly health professionals, need to be aware if someone's presenting with pain in the buttock that they need to think of definitely pain coming from the lower back, uh, but also that there could be a, a chance that there's something happening in the buttock as well. And also, I mean, I guess you could have both as well, which I know we're going to come on to kind of differentials at the same time, but both things could be yeah, could be yes, all causing definitely. it as well, just to make things extra confusing for poor people yes, struggling. Yes, that definitely happens. So someone that has true piriformis syndrome and this true static nerve irritation, what type of signs would they have that, you know, that might A, lead you to think this and then would confirm that kind of, that it's definitely this or, or as, as well as you can be certain that it's this? Okay, so someone with piriformis syndrome generally presents with pain in the mid-buttock region. So the focus of pain for piriformis irritation of the nerve is usually just to the side of the sacrum of the tailbone, so in that sort of deep mid-buttock region. And then the pain usually extends then down through to the lower buttock, down the uh, back of the thigh and down into uh, the leg and foot. So it presents like a typical sciatica pain, which in this case the term sciatica is uh, appropriate because it is an irritation of the sciatic nerve. The tricky thing is that people with piriformis syndrome can also have some coexisting back pain, and that's where it gets a little bit muddy if you are just trying to uh, look at the pre pain presentation and the symptom presentation. So then we have to sort it out a little bit more with some clinical assessments and so things that are more likely to irritate those with true piriformis syndrome are going to be actions that either put the piriformis muscle on stretch or contract it strongly, as opposed to those with lumbar-related pain, so lower back pain, their pain is usually more reproduced by things that load the lower back. So bending and lifting and in our clinical assessment, uh, doing assessments of lumbar movements are more likely to bring on that pain rather than movements of the hip joint where we stretch or contract the piriformis muscle. 
So, so and that means, you know, as, as therapists, we might have patients lying on their back or yeah, and moving their moving their hips and legs around or doing an activity that loads the hip like a squat or a jump or a lunge or something like that. That type of movement that makes those muscles work and, and, and try and reproduce those those sciatic like symptoms. Is that is that right? Yeah, sure. So the piriformis muscle will help you take your leg out to the side and rotate your leg uh, as well. Uh, there's a quick test actually that your listeners can do themselves if they're listening to this and wondering if they have piriformis syndrome. So this test is called the PACE test. So just sitting as they are there now, usually better if they can have their feet slightly off the floor so if they can elevate their chair a little bit. If they put their hands on the outside of their knees and then they just have to push their legs out into their hands so they're not allowed to let their legs move so they have to resist that movement with their hands. So if they push their knees out against the resistance of their hands, that contracts the piriformis muscle. If they hold that there for a few seconds, if that reproduces their buttock pain, and particularly if it reproduces pain down their leg, uh, that might increase the chances that they have this condition. So it's tests like that that we can use in clinical practice, but there's a whole um, range of different tests that we can do in different positions, but it's all yeah, forcing the knee outwards or rotating the leg or stretching the knee across the body is the other position or turning the hip inwards. So there's various combinations of movements that we can do. And there's quite a lot of tests described for this condition. So in clinic as physiotherapists, we can go through that battery of tests and see if we can get any positive reproduction of those symptoms with those tests. And I think that's the key thing as well is looking for the reproduction of those symptoms. It's not necessarily that it's just a bit sore or it hurts around the hip. It's the it's the reproduction of your symptoms. And I guess with this classically, it's that ridiculous or that sciatica type pain that's, you know, shooting down the leg. Will people also get some pins and needles and some numbness maybe or even some weakness down into the lower leg as well? Yes, that can certainly occur. So the first uh, fibres within the nerve that are usually irritated are sensory fibres. So there may be uh, strange sensations that they get. So certainly pins and needles, uh, occasionally numbness, but that you can get other strange sensations like uh, prickling or itching or skin crawling sort of sensations, which are typical nerve type symptoms. Sometimes nerve pain will present as shooting pain uh, down the leg. Sometimes it'll feel burning. So those changes in uh, sensory awareness or weird sort of sensations along you know the back of the thigh the buttock but often the back of the thigh and down the leg they can give an indication that there's some sort of nerve irritation and but then it comes down to figuring out whether that nerve irritation is within the buttock or up in the back so, if, I mean, if that muscle's then, you know, for many of the reasons that we described and it irrita irritates that nerve, is that similar to where m nerves get irritated at other points in the body? So things like, you know, thinking things like carpal tunnel, which I'm sure a lot of people have, are aware of where the nerves gets irritated in the wrist or almost a bit compressed, and then you get some symptoms down into the hand. Is it, is it very similar or in similar in any way to other type of, you know, what we call entrapment neuropathies or nerve entrapment type conditions? Yes, exactly. Exactly the same sort of thing. So the same as carpal tunnel. So so it's compression or, as you say, entrapment of the nerve, of a peripheral nerve. So a peripheral nerve is just the nerve that forms outside of the spinal cord. 
So, yes, it, it is a peripheral nerve entrapment. Hmm. So, Alison, we've, we've done our specific tests or <clears throat> practitioner has done tests on us. Uh, there's a reproduction of our pain. We've, we've recreated that pain. It's not just achy. It's a recreation of pain. Uh, what's next, Alison? Uh, what kind of treatments have we got to, to help this? Is there, uh, you know, do we go straight to manual therapy? What's the go-to? Well, I think the first treatment should always be a course of rehabilitation. Uh, with a physiotherapist is usually a great place to start. Uh, I usually approach this with uh, two main facets to the management approach, and that would be some education on understanding the condition and what positions and activities are going to irritate that nerve because once the uh, patient understands what the condition is and what's irritating it, they can often go ahead and identify things in their own life that they are doing that are irritating the condition. And so doing those things make, makes a big difference very quickly. Mm. And then the other main facet is an exercise program. And that has to be very gentle and progressive because a lot of people with this condition will not cope well with jumping into, for example, a glute strengthening program. And that is, that is one of the things that actually should ring alarm bells in, in a physio's mind when they've got a patient who is responding really poorly to glute exercises, to buttock exercises, because often any strong buttock exercises tend to really stir this up. So we need to look at the underlying issue. So if the piriformis is working hard because uh, there's just certain patterns of, of behaviour, so for example, the patient's been at the gym and been doing lots of squats and bridges perhaps with a band around their legs and working really hard, mm. uh, there might be simple advice around how about we take the bands off and, you know, just allow those muscles to work a little bit more uh, naturally. Sometimes patients have uh, picked up, you know, strong habits of gripping, consciously gripping muscles uh, in their buttock. And usually that's about the gluteus maximus, you know, squeezing hard. But if you are consciously thinking about squeezing your buttock all the time, you often end up getting a bit of a global recruitment of the muscles in that buttock region. And some people have taught themselves to do that just in standing and in walking uh, and trying to do that all the time. But that's quite an inefficient Things. So muscles don't usually work like that. And so sometimes part of the training is reducing that because too much, you know, contraction of those muscles causes a little bit too much hugging of the nerve as it goes through the buttock. So training those things is important. So training efficient behaviour of the muscles uh, and then, you know, some exercises to gently move the nerve and really working on that education and taking away some of the things that are likely to be uh, irritating for the nerve. In terms of manual therapy, that's uh, for some people it's okay. For a lot of people, I find it can be quite provocative. So it depends on the patient and what they can tolerate and how sensitive their nerve is. But definitely, I would usually. Um, so in terms of manual therapy, I would usually say that can be quite provocative for some people, but it depends on the sensitivity of the particular patient and how irritated their nerve is. 
but things, for example, you know, deep massage with an elbow in the buttock or deep massage with, you know, a hard ball or a foam roller sticking into the buttock, those things, they might produce a feeling of short-term relief, but it's really just adding to the compression on that nerve. And longer term, I don't think that's particularly helpful to do aggressive massage. Mm. So perhaps some light massage, but that in itself is never going to be the, the solution for this situation. So that's not where most time should be spent uh, in the management of this condition. So we to be addressing those causes that have, that have started all of this. Um, we've, we talked about training and that kind of like over-clenching, so active um, uh, irritations of the piriformis and the muscles surrounding. Is there any inactivity that, that, that could cause this, Alison? Um, you know, people have mentioned before sitting because you're in that, that right angle position, uh, driving for long periods with your legs in funny positions. Have you ever found anything uh, as a cause of inactivity or, or less movement that can cause this? Yes, certainly. So there's two aspects to the inactivity or positioning, I suppose. So one is the inactivity itself. So... Uh, weight-bearing function is really important uh, for keeping good, healthy buttock muscles. But different buttock muscles are affected in different ways by the lack of gravitational load, so the lack of weight-bearing. So part of my PhD was actually uh, done with the uh, Berlin bed rest study, which is where we took um, young, healthy males and put them on bed rest for eight weeks. And my part of that trial was to do sequential MRI scans, which allows us to have a look at the size of those muscles uh, and the changes in that size over eight weeks. And that was really interesting because piriformis didn't actually change its size at all oh. over the eight weeks, but muscles like the gluteus minimus, the deepest gluteal muscle, were really affected by that lack of loading. So the, the gluteal muscles, particularly the deeper gluteals, tend to be really affected by not standing on your feet and not being physically active. So if they get particularly weak because you're not standing and doing much physical activity, the piriformis doesn't tend to get as sleepy with that lack of loading. And so then it goes, oh, well, I'm still here. I'll do some work. And so that can be one of the things. So being uh, quite... Um, sedentary or not doing much you know standing and walking and physical activity that can lead to some uh, changes in the way the muscles work so the change in behavior and that can increase load on the piriformis and then the second part of that question as you rightly pointed out there is the actual position like the hip position so with the hip at 90 degrees bend the sciatic nerve comes out of the pelvis wraps around the back of the buttock and down down the back of the leg so when you have your hip bent at 90 degrees the nerve um, sort of wraps around the back and wraps around the muscles at the back of the hip there, some of those deep rotators. Now, that sitting in itself won't give you piriformis syndrome, but if you have an irritation of the sciatic nerve and then you are sitting in those positions for prolonged periods, that can just increase the 
the strain on the nerve and the compression on that nerve because the buttock muscles are on a bit of stretch there as well. So that's why it's one of those positions that can irritate the nerve. Driving can be even worse because when you're driving, you've got your feet stretched out in front a little bit more. That puts the nerve on a bit more tension. So the nerve's on tension, the muscles are on stretch, the nerve's a bit more you know, compressed around the back of that hip because of that flex position. Similar thing with cycling. So if you're cycling and particularly if you're down on the drops and your hips are really bent and you're reaching out, particularly if your seat might be a bit too high, you're reaching out for that pedal, you're working hard as you're going uphill. So positions can be important as well as the the inactivity. Because we're almost reproducing that um, diagnostic test there of bringing the hip up <clears throat> wrapping that nerve around a bit and sort of stretching it yeah with, with driving certainly you're you're reproducing that same um effect yeah yeah well that's right and then you know even sitting watching the television if you're sitting in a fairly upright chair but you've got your feet up on a stool those sort of positions as well we've sort of got the nerve on stretch the hip bent there's quite a lot of compression there and you know for people who are, are sat here now and listening to this and they're sat driving or they're sat in this position i mean is it the fact that they're sat in these positions that's caught that's causing it or is it just that it's already irritated and then these these positions are then just further aggravating it if that makes sense well it's a little bit of chicken egg isn't it but uh, like we all sit and our society these days we all sit a lot uh we certainly don't all get piriformis syndrome so sitting alone is not the cause uh, of the of the condition but once you have that irritation you're certainly much more likely to get uh, irritated but prolonged sitting and lack of physical activity can contribute to the causes of piriformis syndrome which can be weakness or a, a change in the behavior and the sharing of the work done by those team members those muscles in the buttock mm. if um Fantastic. <clears throat> so Let's say we've we've got someone who uh, we we said earlier that the the condition often goes undiagnosed sometimes uh, for a long time we we assume there's some sort of discogenic so some lower back disc slip or pinch somewhere else and we don't quite realise as practitioners that it is a piriformis syndrome. Let's say we've got someone who's now quite chronic, incredibly aggravated, and even adaptation of their daily routine or um, uh, there's certainly a patient that doesn't respond to manual therapy or to that deep massage. What's the next step from there, Alison? I mean, uh, can we use injections like other areas of, of, um, uh, of the body, anything like that to help relieve that initial pain phase? Sure. So if I would always recommend a trial of you know, non-invasive treatment first. Mm. So with some good load management and exercise. But if if that's been given a, a good trial, so a good trial I would say is a minimum of three months, but these conditions can take, you know, longer than that to recover, particularly if it's been there for a while. But if you've given that a good try uh, or if pain levels are really severe and you really need something else to help more quickly, then yes, injections are available. So the first injection would usually be a corticosteroid injection or a steroid injection. That is usually combined with a local anesthetic and that can be something that is used to both confirm a diagnosis or to help make a diagnosis as well as a treatment. So the, the cortisone injection 
should be done under guidance. So that means either with an ultrasound or with a, a CT, a CAT scan guidance to make sure that the injection is going in the right place. Mm. Now, if that local anaesthetic immediately gives some great pain relief, that helps with the diagnosis that, yes, the problem is here rather than up in the back because if the compression was from the back, you wouldn't get that same sort of really immediate positive response. Uh, so that can give some relief. It's just important to be aware, of course, that uh, cortisone uh, will only give you usually a fairly short-term uh, relief, a short-term solution. So that might be a few weeks. Yeah. So a lot of people will get a few weeks relief from that. But it's important to realise that that is not then a solution to the underlying problem. So it can be something that's used in combination with rehabilitation. But if you only had cortisone injection, the pain is likely to come back. And so some people go down the, the route of uh, multiple cortisone injections. The problem with that is that while it can be quite useful for short-term pain relief, multiple injections is not that healthy for the muscles and the tendons around the area. So we would want to avoid multiple cortisone injections. So the recommendation is usually around three in one particular area, mm. but we don't really have great evidence on how much is okay. But usually three is where most doctors would say, well, that's probably enough. So if you are having a cortisone injection, try to make the most of that by pairing it with some good rehabilitation so that when the effect of that cortisone starts wearing off, you've already got some good strategies in place to help you uh, solve this situation for the longer term. Absolutely. Um now, Alison, this was actually a question posed to us on our Facebook group, uh, on our support group. Um, if the piriformis is such a problem, can't I just have it removed? Can't we get in there, whip it out, stop it causing problems? Uh, well, not quite removal, but the, the last resort treatment is surgery. Mm. And I do say last resort, everything else should be tried first. And one of the surgical interventions then is a piriformis release. Now, that's not actually removal. They don't take it out of your body. What the surgical procedure is, is releasing the tendon where it joins into the back of the hip. So the muscle then retracts away from the bone. It's still sitting there and it's still got some attachments through its um, fibrous uh, package, if you like. So all muscles sort of sit in a fibrous sheath. So it's still there in your body, but it, it takes away its ability to be active effectively or to have any you know significant role to play around the hip. So that is an option and that's usually the last resort. But of course, piriformis is there for a reason. It is, you know, one of a number of muscles that works in a team. So you remove that and it does remove one of your team members. It is a long recovery uh, after that surgery. So I would always suggest that do everything you can first before heading there. And that's why most surgeons will also try to make sure that you've tried everything else first, mm. because the outcomes of that surgery are fairly unknown, really. We, we've got some evidence for outcomes of the surgery, but they are really only 
case series. So they're not high quality evidence. We don't have high quality evidence where we've done randomized clinical trials where we uh, get some people to have this surgery and some people to have another intervention and compare those things. So it's still a little bit unknown. Uh, how you'll go. So that you really have to weigh up the relative risks and benefits of that procedure. So yes, don't jump straight into having your piriformis <laughs> released. Uh, try everything else first because, you know, it's not a bad, bad, <clears throat> sorry, just try everything else first. It's it's not a bad muscle. There's no bad muscles in the body. Uh, it's just some sort of you know problem that's arisen in the function there. So if we can sort that out, uh, that's that's a much better option than having your pir- piriformis release. Just having it snipped. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> now, Alison, would would there be space? Uh, so we know that the uh, the surgical intervention really is the the, the far end of the uh, the scale there. We know that corticosteroid injections can only be administered so often because of the the um, changes they'll make in the tissues. Could there be space for something along the lines of a, a Botox injection? So we're looking to temporarily um, decrease the, the the power and the the action of that muscle. Or again, almost half for um, diagnosis and half for half for treatment, just to let that nerve calm down a bit whilst it whilst it heals. Is that possible? Or, or has that been a, a yeah, hurdle? Sure. Yes, so Botox is increasingly being used for the treatment of piriformis syndrome and for other conditions around the body where there might be sort of muscle spasm involved. So it's an interesting one. So obviously it's injecting, you know, toxin into the muscle and that causes a a paralysis. It doesn't paralyze the whole muscle. Uh, They have to sort of do multiple injections through the muscle because it just paralyzes a small area around uh, the, the injection. Uh, but it does significantly reduce activation in the muscle. And over time, we usually see some atrophy. So some um, the muscle getting smaller over time related to that, you know, partial paralysis uh, that's occurred with the Botox. So for some people, it can be useful if the cause was actually piriformis hypertrophy or piriformis overactivity, mm. then it may help. But, of course, there are various other reasons why you might get sciatic nerve irritation in the buttock, in which case it won't have much effect. The same with the uh, with what I was talking about with the cortisone. The injection will only uh, address part of, part of the issue. So if there's an underlying reason why the piriformis was working too much, if you paralyze it for a while, but you don't address any underlying issues when the muscle wakes up again, because this is a temporary paralysis, it does eventually wake up again, the situation may recur. So again, I would suggest that Botox is best used in combination with a good rehabilitation program. Mm. Perfect. Well, listeners, look, I tried to find you the magic pill. I tried to find you a simple injection (laughs) and that would solve all your problems. It looks like, uh, as always, we've got to do the hard work as well. Yes, absolutely. Got to do the hard work and that will certainly give you the best longer term outcomes. Yeah. 
So if we just jump back a little bit, just as we kind of move towards wrapping up, the, you know, you've had this patient, they may have had an injection, you know, you've done a steroid injection and they're feeling really good. They've reduced their pain and they can, you know, then go about starting to do their rehabilitation with obviously less pain and less irritation. Do you have any go-to exercises that, you know, that someone that you generally lean on for in this, t- this type of situation or is it hugely varied from patient to patient? It can be fairly variable uh, depending on what, uh, you know, how, how the patient presents in terms of what, what weaknesses or, you know, muscle habits, you know, they've formed. So there might be specific things for each individual. But in general, initially, there are things such as, you know, training better load sharing, if you like, which is making sure that they're using, you know, their legs in a in a, a way that sort of shares the force across their hips, their knees, their ankles. So some people with this condition, for example, have developed, you know, those gripping strategies around the buttock. So if we put them into, for example, lots of glute strengthening exercises straight away, it usually just makes things worse. And so we might do things to try to calm the buttock muscles, but try to get their functional capacity up. So that's just their ability to go and walk and sit to stand and Uh, do all their daily activities by at least trying to get some work through their quads and their calves, so their thighs and their their lower legs. And so we might do initially some things like some ball squats on the wall or some calf raises or things like that that put more emphasis down the leg and at the same time working on, you know, not clenching their glutes when they're doing those things. And then we gradually progress them towards loading their buttocks again, loading their buttock muscles, but trying to avoid those strategies of squeeze your buttock, squeeze your buttock every time they they do an exercise. So part of it's a retraining and a re loading, trying to get the system more uh, tolerant of those sorts of loads. So that's one part of it. And then we also do some other exercises where we try to move the nerve through the buttock. And that can be quite variable depending on the uh, irritability of the patient. So there's uh, things that we would do for nerve movement. Then there's also usually a big question around stretching. If you look at the literature even on, you know, what things most people think you should be doing for this condition, there's usually a lot of buttock stretching in that. Now, that will usually give you, again, a feeling of short-term relief because you'll get a bit of a feeling of short-term relief from some lengthening in the muscle, but that will only be very short-term. And that may be one of the things that contributes to ongoing irritation through the, through the nerve. So for people who are doing a lot of stretching and they're not getting on top of this condition, usually I'd recommend a bit of a holiday from stretching and just see how that goes. Now, that can be quite confronting to a lot of people because they'll feel like stretching is the only thing that is, you know, keeping them going. But sometimes it's one of the main things that's continuing to irritate irritate the nerve because when you put the muscle on stretch you are compressing the nerve Uh, so using 
using things like a hot pack or uh, some gentle self-massage. You can get like these uh, vibratory massage um, tools, nothing like a big aggressive hammer or anything, but just the gentle vibration um, sort of machines can sometimes help to just sort of give that feeling of relaxation through the muscles. So some heat and some gentle massage, um, but avoid deep massage and maybe try a little holiday away from those stretches because sometimes they are actually part of the issue. So it's that short-term relief of, oh, a lovely stretch, but actually we're annoying it. We're still, we're still creating that pull. Yeah, you're just adding to that compressive load. Mm. Um, Alison, so uh, I've just been diagnosed. We, actually, we did touch on this earlier, but let's say it again because I think this is really important for the, um, the mental uh, outcome of where we're going to go. I've just been diagnosed with piriformis syndrome. My therapist has done all the tests. I've done my, my squeezes at home. We've found that I've got some faulty movement patterns. What's the prognosis here? How long am I looking at for this to get better? What should I expect? Sure, and that is, yeah, that that is really important to be aware of uh, how long it takes to recover from this condition. It's it's different from I've just overworked a muscle or strained a muscle and six weeks later it might be all much better. If you've got to the point where you've got significant irritation of the sciatic nerve, it can take quite a while to settle down. So for most people, you're looking at a three to six month recovery. Mm. Um, Other people, it might be particularly the longer you've had this condition. And if you've also got other things going on, so if you've got back pain as like back issues as well as the hip issues, it might take long so it might take even longer than than that 12 months that that's not to say that you won't see any improvements in that time it's just saying be patient changes take time and it's quite normal to have flares along the way so no one has a rehabilitation program where they never flare up so it's going to be a gradual process of you know trying to reduce the pain you know, train, you know, address the underlying issues and then gradually reload the system. But as we reload the system, so that means trying different, more challenging exercises that would usually have irritated you, there may be a little flare, but the aim is to just really gradually progress any program or any challenge so that any little flares that you have are relatively mild and settle quickly. So we want to avoid big changes in activity. So, For example, you know, you're feeling really good. So then, right, I'm going to go for a run today. I'm going to go and do that 10K trail run and then have a big flare up. So we want to avoid those boom, bust, boom, bust situations. Mm. So my advice is listen to your health professional and take that advice to take it slowly. Be patient. It will take time. So we're doing big stuff here, re-education of muscle patterning, um, uh, changing daily habits. It's not just your regular stretch, sit on a lemon ball, a lemon ball, <laughs> sit on a massage ball, uh, drink some lemon water. Maybe that's what I was thinking. Um, uh, yeah, this is big stuff. So we're talking three to six to possibly 12 months. Yeah, don't book a 10K in for next weekend. I like it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. So I think that pretty much wraps up our, our whistle step tour of, you know, what is a hugely complicated and, you know, fascinating topic. So thank you so much for, for joining us today, Alison. Was there anything that we missed that you think our listeners should, should know about piriformis syndrome? 
No, I think I think we've covered pretty much all of it there. So just making sure that you you get that clear diagnosis and you know being patient doing the rehab trying not to just rely on the quick fixes of an injection it really is going to be much better for you in the longer term if you pair any injections that you do have with a good rehabilitation program stick with the program it takes time be patient but you'll get there Fantastic. And I think that that injection advice is so good. And that's not just for this, it's for everything. You know, the injection, as I say to my patients, it's a, it's a temporary measure to allow you to do more and allow you to do more rehab and more exercises, which they, you know, help once it's worn off, really. So thank you for clarifying that as well for our listeners. Yeah, so it's not the answer, it's the first step. Yes, absolutely. So where can we go to find out more about you, Alison? I know that you have, you know, lots of information on this topic. You know, where would you like to to point people to? So for people with this condition, the best place to go uh, to find me and information, further information about this condition would be a website that I run with a couple of colleagues. It's called Hip Pain Help. So just hippainhelp.com. And actually... Uh, in coordination with this podcast, we should be releasing a course that is specific for the management of piriformis syndrome and deep gluteal syndrome on our website. So that involves some lectures that goes through helping you understand uh, the condition, the different diagnoses, how it's assessed, uh, what causes it, and then really importantly, strategies for overcoming this condition. And we've also got an exercise program there, so a beginner program, an intermediate program, an advanced program with some good guidelines for how to know whether you're on the right level of, of exercise. So we've tried to make that fairly comprehensive so people can go to hip pain health and have a look out for that course. There's also a lot of free information on that website that is really helpful for various different uh, hip and pelvic pain conditions. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. I'm sure we will uh, we will send a lot of people there. We also will put links to that in our show notes and we'll share some stuff on our on our social media as well. So thank you for providing that resource. No problem. Thanks very much. And are you on- are you on social media as well? Can people go to uh, to look you up on uh, on the various you know socials? Yes, sure. So I'm on Twitter is probably my main uh, social media, but that is usually a uh, more professional uh, one. So most of the content that I post on there will be more aimed at health professionals, but. Certainly patients with piriformis syndrome or with these long-standing conditions become very educated about uh, all of these things about uh, the nerve and the hip. So some of them will um, still find that information useful. I've also got a blog at drallisongrimaldi.com. Again, that is directed to uh, health professionals. So it's um, you know fairly technical language, but there is, uh, I do have a lot of people with pain still visiting the blog and trying to read that information as well. But that's one of the reasons why we started Hip Pain Help uh, because it's more um, easier to understand language. But Hip Pain Help does also have uh, social media that you can follow and Facebook is the main uh, social media we have with Hip Pain Help and Instagram as well. But Facebook's a good one 
to uh, search. So you can, they can just search Hip Pain Help at Facebook and they'll be able to uh, follow Hip Pain Help. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and taking time out of your, you know, morning's a very special time. So, uh, you know, bright and early over there. So thank you for, thank you for talking, <laughs> talking to us. Dave, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Alison. That was fantastic. Great. No problems. Thanks very much for the invitation. It's been great being here. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will catch you on the next episode. Have a great day. Adios.